Hello and welcome to Music Speaks. This podcast dedicates itself to how music impacts people's lives. For this show, we usually have three co-hosts, myself, Hunter Sigona, the newly espoused Mary Haddix Hermans, and Sean Rimkunis. And we are joined today by our, by our platinum member friend, Nick Harriel. Sean, Mary, and I, and Nick, believe that many people have a playlist that makes their life unique through music. We pride ourselves on building upon our musical knowledge with our featured guests, jamming to incredible music, talking about a wide variety of artists and composers, and everything in between. <laughs> hey guys, I'm Mary. I'll say the quote of the day in a second, but yes, I did get married. Thanks, Hunter, for that. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, and today's quote of the day for Nick is, I may never find all of the answers. I may never understand why. I may never prove what I know to be true, but I know I still have to try. And that's from Dream Theater. And that is correct, and that is the topic of discussion for today. And Dream Theater is an American progressive metal rock band formed in 1985 under the name Majesty by John Petrucci, John Myung, and Mike Portnoy, while they attended Berklee College of Music in Boston, Massachusetts. They subsequently dropped out of their studies to concentrate further on the band that would eventually become Dream Theater. Their current lineup consists of Petrucci, Myung, vocalist James Labrie, keyboardist Jordan Rudis, and drummer Mike McGinney. Over the various lineup changes, Petrucci and Myung have begun only two constant members. Portnoy remained with the band until 2010 when he left to pursue other musical endeavors, and he has since been replaced by Mangini. After a brief stint with Chris Collins, followed by Charlie Domencini, who was dismissed from Dream Theater not long after the release of their first album, the Brie was hired as the band's singer in 1991. Dream Theater's first keyboardist, Kevin Moore, left the band after three albums and was replaced by Derek Sheeranin in 1995 after a period of touring. After just one album with Sheeranin, they replaced him with current keyboardist Jordan Rudis in 1999. date uh dream theater has released 15 15 studio albums the band's highest selling release is their second album images and words that's pretty much what i expected uh which reached number 61 on the billboard 200 chart both the albums awake in 94 and six degrees of inner turbulence 2002 also entered the charts at number 32 and 46 respectively and received critical acclaim. Their fifth album, Metropolis Part Two Scenes from a Memory in 1999, was ranked number 95 on the October 2006 issue of Guitar World's magazine's list of the greatest 100 guitar albums of all time. It was also ranked as the 15th greatest concept album in March 2003 by Classic Rock Magazine. As of 2018, Dream Theater has sold over 12 million records worldwide and has received three Grammy Award nominations, including one win in 2022. All right, 2022, let's go. Uh, along with, along with uh, 
Queensryche and Fate's Warning, the band has been referred to as one of the big three of the progressive metal genre, responsible for its development and popularization. All right, you guys ready to talk Dream Theater? All right, Indeed. Here we go. All right, if you're still here, thanks for staying after the break. We are going to talk a little more Dream Theater and um, what we're going to do the second half. Um, we're going to talk about the opening track and lead single to Dream Theater's 1992 album, Images and Words. Pull Me Under is the first official release with the band's then new vocalist, James Labrie, replacing Charlie Domin uh, Dominici, who uh, last performed on their debut album, When Dream and Day Unite. Um, Pull Me Under was written by then keyboardist Kevin Moore. Um, it's a song with various Shakespearean themes, which we talked about Shakespeare earlier, um, mm -hmm. and particularly in relation to Hamlet, um, as evidenced by the last line in the song. However, it's not specifically about Hamlet, for it just shares its themes and is inspired by it. It was the last song that was written and recorded for the album at the request of their A&R man, as an audio and recording man. Pull Me Under became and still is the band's biggest commercial hit, peaking at number 10 on the U.S. rock chart, helping images and words to be certified gold in 1995. Uh, Mike Portnoy has had um, this to say about the song's success and its effect on the band's career. I think that its success was probably the worst thing to happen to us, the worst <laughs> thing happened to us in terms of the record company. In oh, terms man. of the fan base and the exposure, of course, it was great. But with the record company, they immediately expected that to happen every time out. And we knew that we weren't that type of band. Oh, my you, God. You know what, though? You know what, though? You know who says that about, do you know who says that about any, any song of theirs that gets popular? Every artist that's ever lived will say, <laughs> everyone will say, oh, I, I damn it, I, freaking hate that song even though it's the one that got us on the map like mm -hmm. damn it now i have to play this one forever yeah when when i've got all this better stuff i've written since then yeah i could imagine that's frustrating for an artist where you know i and you know that's funny that's something we never think we've interviewed some artists you know uh, you know like um uh, about their music and we never thought to ask like their most popular song do they dislike that song you know or maybe not dislike it but have they come to resent it i think um billy joel uh came to resent a few of his songs um really that he wrote early on because just because doesn't he how hate much piano man yeah he hates piano man yeah, I think that's pretty hilarious. Just, I could see him listening to Piano Man and be like, why did I write this? God. <laughs> like, this is so, like, the way you would probably think now, like, mm -hmm. in your late, early, mid to late 20s, about like 14 year old you and thinking, like, God, why did I say there? Why did I do that? Right. That's probably how uh -huh. they think about their early stuff. It's like, right. what was I thinking? Oh my God. <laughs> it's so angsty. Yeah. You know, so yeah. Just talking about our, our master of segways, Hunter's a gonna, but um we're going into angsty music. So let's talk about some angsty music. Um, y'all, I honestly think that the beginning of it really does set the scene really well. 
like you can just kind of visualize what's happening. Yep. Um, there are like demons and like dark creatures like running everywhere, um, all over the place. It's pretty cool. And what did I write? I said, uh, it's really interesting too, was it's it kind of had this like rustic old guitar sound that kind of like started the piece. And then as yeah. the piece went along, it then kind of moved, it kind of in a way, it kind of like time traveled to the future. And kind of play into some new electronic sounding guitars. I'm not sure if y'all kind of agree with me, disagree with me about it, but it felt older and then it kind of went new, but also kind of stayed old. So you had this like this kind of like uh age, not age gap, but you had this like generational gap of like sounding different guitars at the same time. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and I felt like when I was listening to it, it required some Haru dance moves. So Nick. Um, the uh, uh, you know the listeners won't be able to to see you do the dance moves now. So if you like to perform them now, I will give you full <laughs> audience to do so as of now. So go ahead, help yourself. Uh, you, you know, I, I I might pass on this one. Oh. But what, what I will <laughs> I say, in, what I will say instead mm-hmm. is I I also like how um this you know, the guitar and everything sort of blends with the keyboard. Mm, um, yeah, yeah. And I, I like that interplay between the two around like the minute and a half, two minute mark when, you know, everything starts to get going. Um, yeah, I just love when those, that kind of instrumentation just collides and, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, like this is a headbanger. Like, I'm not gonna lie, the, the that first after that first minute, minute and a half, it's it's that intro is a headbanger. It's right. uh, it's great for workouts. I'll put mm-hmm. it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, then obviously you get to lost in the sky. Right. So yeah, we can uh, kind of move on to that portion. The, the the vocal talents of Nick Hario, everybody. Yeah. Incredible. You know, I also thought that um within this groove and it almost felt like it almost felt like there was a nice uh connection from text to music and that like it felt like it was going to like continue increasing. It was getting kind of more intense and the chord uh chord progressions were moving upward and I felt like that was kind of a nice connection to as well i almost also i wrote this down too i said that um this felt like a hunter's alarm clock music it would get him up and get him ready for school i thought um but you know just when he's has a as a ton of bad students he's just like the whole world is spinning inside me and that's what's not good not good i wrote that that down because i almost felt like that was a really great idea like a really great capturing moment of music to text where like it kept kind of increasing. It was getting like, I think almost in a way, like the connection to Octavarium of the, the momentum, the spinning and the, and the cyclical nature of a uh, kind of like feeling like you're stuck in a rut or something. I thought that was kind of like definitely prevalent or something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, also the title of pull me under too, like the connection of getting kind of pulled out of that loop in a way. Um, or dragged back into the loop. Or dragged back into the loop. Yeah, Hunter. Um, Mary, uh, I felt like I've been kind of cutting you off a lot here. Tell me what you no. think about this. Think, tell me what you think about this song. 
you haven't cut me off at all, Sean. <laughs> I just, I, it's interesting to, to be like a floating head. Mm. <laughs> oh, so sure. I like to watch other floating heads, but um, mm. no. So I have to take a step back and talk about the beginning because it's, it makes sense as to why I like the rest of it. So um, we often don't recognize it, but setting the scene and this idea of mm -hmm. like providing a basis, it's like cleaning mm -hmm. the palette to come into and, you know, be able to accept and process what's about to happen. And so one thing that comes to mind is like, when you listen to, I couldn't give you a specific example unless it's like My Chemical Romance something, um, but like songs that immediately start into exactly what they're doing and then they do it for four straight minutes and then they cut it off. That is more likely to be turned off on the radio or, you know, taken as more like white noise or background mm -hmm. than something that starts with, you know, the curtains opening like or the movie never starts. Almost no movie starts with the title coming up first. Mm -hmm. There's always some sort of material yeah. before it. And I think that one reason that Pull Me Under works so well is simply they're just time that they are willing to set that stage before they do it and right. then of course uh, they take that rustic nature that they're starting to churn and then they turn it into this new oh my god what's happening um, yeah. yeah so i i just i really like pull me under i think that's the first thing that i ever heard from dream theater yeah. um, but i just I appreciate it so much more than some of the, the metal that I listen to because they're willing to spend different plates in the same piece Yeah. because they appreciate how to tell a story. Mm, yeah. You know, and, and just like Octavarium in that same fashion, uh, and you might agree with this, Nick, is that the guitar playing is off the charts on this piece. Again, I don't really know who is playing guitar, but whoever's doing it is doing a pretty damn good job for this piece. So, and same thing with Octavarium. I thought it was pretty, pretty darn incredible how things were kind of working out like that. But um, before I jump to you, Nick, um, Hunter, your thoughts about your alarm clock music and, and why it's getting you up in the morning? Uh, probably to smash the alarm. Um, no, I'm not dumb kidding. Uh, mostly. Yeah. So <laughs> I think, you know, I, I can say that I, I didn't like this piece as much as I liked Octavarium, but... I can appreciate basically everything that everyone else was saying in the sense that, you know, world building in, in anything is necessary in order to ensure that the message is received, um, whether it's, you know, like Mary said, a movie or music or even a book or any piece of art. You want to make sure that you have the right ambiance for whatever sort of message or any sort of environment you're trying to convey through the art so like you know that's why it might seem funny that you know if you go to like an art exhibit you know they have a certain lighting they have a certain decor leading into whatever the exhibit is why is that well because they need to make sure that you're in the right frame of mind to accept what it is that they're trying to sell you right um or or whatever message they're trying to convey to you and I think with this piece in particular, you know, they clearly have a sound that they are, I assume, known for. And if that's not something that you're used to, 
mm-hmm. and something that you are already willing to listen to. You know, like Mary said, they're going to shut it off. Someone's going to, they're not going to take the time to sit there and listen to it. So yeah. you need to, um, you need to, uh, I guess, bide your time, which is part of the art of building an album, right? I mean, when you build an album, particularly the beginning and the end have to be as solid as possible. You have to make sure that you exit or you enter the world and you exit the world in such a way that, you know, leaves people satisfied. And so, yeah, okay, maybe you can get away with a more abrupt song of it, say, you know, third or fourth on the album Mm. because you're immersed in it. You're just, you're, you're already a part of it and you're in the mid, you're in the, at the height of it. I don't know where this falls. What did it say? It was the last one written on the album. Is that what this was? Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know if that's where it falls on the album. So um, uh, I, think it, I think it's first, right? I think maybe yeah, it's that, first. Right? Is it? All right. It's so then, but it was, but it was written last. All right. Yeah. So then it's even yeah. more crucial that it take its time and not jump right into it. You know, it's funny. The, the first thing that comes to my mind at like the two minute mark, the sound changes a little bit. It's really, I, I have no idea. I, I mean, I know why. I immediately, it screams to me, Power Rangers. I have no idea as to where that came from, but I heard it and I was like, yes. That's what it made me think of. Um, Just, you know, because the theme songs for that show in particular, often uh, they pulled a lot from rock music at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And probably some progressive rock from early on they pulled from. So that's just sort of, that was sort of my thought. It was totally out of left field, but somewhat connecting it back. You know Um, what's weird, Hunter? Because you said Power Rangers. You know what just kind of popped in my head was the theme song to... um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for some reason. Say, right. So oh, we'll yeah. same era. Same era. Weird, weird. Yeah. You know what I mean? Weird. It all has a similar kind of sound to it. You know, it was a a group of young people at the time. You know, how would you embody young people at the time? You know, edgy music. Yeah. This was sort of the, at that point, you know, late 90s. When was this particular one? This was written, what, 92, we said? Early, yeah, it's not late 90s. Or, or I'm sorry, early '90s. So early Power 90s. Rangers came out in I think '91. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it was right around that same time period. And Ninja Turtles was the late '80s. Right. So I think it was like '87 or '88. That sounds about so right. So all in that five-year time period. Yeah. I would uh, like. To pose. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Mary. No, 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 no. Batman. Batman. I mean, that in itself sounds mm. like it should have been, you know, strummed. Yes, it does. Oh yeah, right. it's true. So it's it's there. Yeah. It is. It's there. Nick's uh, eyes have been lighting out for the last five minutes, so yeah, I'm gonna let a- Nick talk for a while, buddy. Go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say. Um, well, one thing I was gonna mention to you, Sean, is that um, it's John Petrusi who does the uh, guitar. Oh right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So he was one of the founding members. That's mainly what my eyes were lighting up about. Oh. Like, <laughs> I, I was trying to find a way to enter. <laughs> I was trying to find a way to uh, intersperse that into uh, what everybody else was saying because sure. you, you had said the guitar playing is off the charts. So right. I, I had to remind myself, oh, yeah, that's John Petrucci on the mm-hmm. guitar. We um, also have to remind each other that you are the guest, so and you should talk more about this, this piece. Um, so, Nick, what, what makes so, this piece so fascinating to you? You know, um, I think one thing that I, I like about this piece is um, it's kind of kind of a strange reference, but 
Um, it's kind of how I feel about Superman the Ride at Six Flags, mm. where I feel like it's just the right length in time, like in terms of it being like eight minutes, which, you know, for most artists, you'd say an eight minute song, I'm like that's ridiculous. But for Dream Theater, that's kind of like bit on the shorter side at times. Um, mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. so, you know, obviously you, you've got the, mm-hmm. um, you, you've got the build up, then you've got the, you know, the pump, the pumping, the head pumping guitar, mm-hmm. head bumping guitar, I should say. Um, and, you know, it is at times a little bit like a, a roller coaster. Um, if if the roller coaster just kept going up and down and up and down, mm. um, and you know it it, it does like kind of like reach that eight minute mark, and it, it's it's a good song for me to listen to. Like mm-hmm. you know, if I know I don't have a ton of attention span or my concentration is elsewhere, <laughs> um, you know, like something like Octavarium, it's almost an it's not that like I don't appreciate Octavarium. It's mm-hmm. that my mind will eventually wander, mm-hmm. you know, like especially right. when it's not at like the you know, at that uh, Act Three, sure. Um, part of this song, you know, it's easy for your mind to wander. With this song, it kind of really hooks you in pretty quickly, and you know, it, like a roller coaster, you know, it doesn't really let off until the end. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and oh, and to kind of segue this, mm-hmm. and just like any roller coasters, when you get to the end, it's just kind of jerks and stops. Mm. You know, I'm thinking, oh, you know, I'm very nice. About, right. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. A lot of coasters will just oops, stop. Yeah. And the, like that, the song, you know, kind of stops and, um, you know, having done a little bit more research into the song, what I found out is that this uh, this immediate stoppage of the song uh, is kind of a reference to somebody suddenly uh, dying, like passing away. Mm-hmm. Uh, which kind of, but if you think about it, you know, the song "Pull Me Under," "Pull Me Under," "I'm Not Afraid." It's kind of like a bit of a reference to like like take me death like i'm not i'm not afraid you know of the end of the end um and then you know like it just kind of abruptly stopped but i and i think i i forget who it was one of the band members you know even said you know oftentimes you know unfortunately sometimes you can see death coming a mile away but oftentimes you know, you can see like death just suddenly happens and you're not prepared for it. Um, and, you know, in a way, that's what this, the ending of the song kind of, you know, is trying to represent. Right. Oh, that's an interesting perspective. Sure. So um, you were saying that, I, well, sorry, um, brain. Things. That's okay. But um, 
it, where it just ends, we should at least quantify how it ends because some pieces oh, yeah. end like that, they end on a downbeat. They mm -hmm. end on a syncopated beat that's like mm -hmm. emphasized throughout the piece. There's some sort of order to it, but like I've listened to Pull Me Under so many times and I still can't really like, I mean, I could notate it and tell you literally what's there, but like I don't yeah. know why they would cut it off like that other than something, you know, akin to a person's death or something like that because there is no control to that. I thought it would just transition to the next song. Isn't that what it's doing? Well, I haven't, like, listened to the full album, which I really should know that uh, you say that. Mm. But it's still, like, regardless, it is kind of, like, the way it stops, you can't just seamlessly transition to a next song. Like, that's not, you know, it's not really possible. Was this, did you say this was written as a single as well as being part of the album, or is it, it just was from the single, album? It was a single, um, but it just was, yeah, it's the first song of the album, but um, it was written at the last. Right, so the only reason I was wondering was because if it is, if it was originally, or if it was at some point written as a single, then I would assume the end is intentional and not intended just to carry on to the next one because a it single is, is obviously meant to be listened as an individual piece, right? I mean, I would find it hard to believe if you would write a song that was intended to move on directly that you would make it as abrupt as you would. Um, there are definitely songs like that were not intended to be listened by themselves. They were intended to be listened as part of an album, which is, again, going back to the concept of, like, the art of album construction, which is sort of lost currently only because so many people are so used to releasing, like, EPs, which are often yeah. singles, or, um, you know, they're releasing just the singles off of an album. Um, yeah. And then the album's not compiled until much later when they finally even have other things written because they might not have written other things yet. So I think that there definitely is some symbolic meaning to that end of it. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it was a single, so it was definitely intentional. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah, my only, yeah. Oh, I was just say, my only other comment to you, Nick, was, um, and it's more of a question for you, why do you think of all this, because they've had 15 albums, right? So why do you think this song is the one that became a staple for them out of those 15 albums? I think part of it was, um, and you'll often see this with a lot of artists, um, it was kind of like, yes, they had their like debut album under a different vocalist, mm -hmm. but this was kind of like their first, in a way, big album on the scene. And I think you'll see just a lot, like, regardless, any artist that gets, like, semi-popular, usually, like, oh, in a lot of cases, they're, they're songs that reach, like, the most critical success are often, like, their first big ones. Because it's something mm -hmm. that's new and, you know, you haven't really heard it before. 
you know, by the time you get to Dream Theater's seventh or eighth album, people are like, yeah, yeah, I've heard this before, you know, whatever. Um, You know, there's nothing new here. Mm -hmm. But, um, so I think novelty is a portion of it. Um, Another thing was that, well, this song, it seems like the record company probably, it looks like the record company kind of almost pressured them on this one in a bit to make this because Mm -hmm. they realized, oh, like we need like a promotional single for this album or else like you're not going to gain any traction. Um, Right. So marketing was more heavily influential on this particular one. And, you know, obviously, you know, and a lot of, you know, music that makes the charts, there is, you know, a lot of marketing. I also think, you know, the length, um, and they actually did do shortened, there are shortened versions for like music videos mm-hmm. for this song, as well as like a radio version that's a little shorter. Because an eight minute song just is not going to make it on the radio. And, you know, remember back in 92, we didn't have Spotify, we didn't really have the internet. So radio was the really the only way you could really get your name out there. Oh, yes. Back in ye olden day. <laughs> so, yeah. Nobody was going to, you know, uh, have your link to your Spotify profile. So. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I, that's definitely something I think people don't realize. Not every song is, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody, which in itself was a risk at the time. Yeah, yeah totally. So it just happened to be one that paid off. But how many other people had songs that were probably of a similar length at that time who maybe not even maybe they didn't even attempt the song because they were like, oh, they're never going to sell. You know what I mean? Maybe yeah, it was something exactly. that they did in a private in a, when they played live or something, but it was never going to be recorded because they're like, who's going to want to listen to that? Yeah. And I, I think also, you know, just. Um, you know, the. Like I kind of said, it is kind of like a a good length song Mm -hmm. where, you know, it captures people's attention without necessarily requiring them to think that much. I think a lot of dream theater stuff requires you to be in a certain headspace to appreciate it. Yeah. I would say this is, it's not a simple song by any means. I would say it's one of, they're simpler in terms of like, ease of listening yeah i agree with that 100 well y'all that was amazing um hunter would you like to help me segue into this next section i have no idea how but you are the master <laughs> of segways my friend but you tell me how sure so um as we move out of pull me under we're not really going because we're going to keep pulling us down under all the way to the bottom of the bottom ocean of the sea. that's right where nick is going to dazzle us with his knowledge of all things spongebob which as we know is in a pineapple under the sea that was beautiful <laughs> that was beautiful that was, that was, that was i don't pay you i don't pay you enough hunter i know um, that's how i was at all I don't really pay him at all. Um, exactly. We do yeah. it for the music, right? We do it for the music. Uh, we're going to take another break. And, and uh, when we come back, just like our master of ceremonies just said, uh, we will return and have Nick take our SpongeBob SquarePants quiz. You don't want to miss that. And we'll be right back. So stay with us. And we really want to thank 
Nick for being here and uh, introducing our podcast to some really super cool progressive rock or metal, depending on your tastes, guys. Um, and we also want to thank Dream Theater. Um, 15 albums is a huge deal. And if we're going to talk about any of Dream Theater, we have to, we had to go Octavarium, right? So at least we got to talk about Pull Me Under a little bit as well. So anyways. Uh, any final thoughts? Talk to Hunter then. Uh, oh, okay. Any, any final thoughts, Hunter? Um, no, just that I was pleasantly surprised by the piece. I mean, it's not something I would listen to, you know, on my of my own volition, you know, in my free time. But it's something that I didn't think I would enjoy as much as I did. I mean, it, I, that's kind of why I uh, picked the piece because, you know, I it's pretty complex and. Uh, I figured I could get uh, everybody's take on it, you know, in the process, you know, learn some new things myself. Mm-hmm. You want to you go, Mary? What do you think? I'll chime away. <laughs> well, I mean, I outro it a little bit, you know, Dream Theater is super cool, but Octavarium is just a massive, giant thing, um, and you really can't get the whole experience until you've listened to it like six times. And truly, I'll go back on this because I said it like three times on the cast. Watching them do it is a completely different, uh, completely different game. Um, and I think, as especially as classical musicians, we don't talk enough about um, like live performances and what you know. I mean, and classical music live performances are not necessarily the same for an or- from an orchestral standpoint because we're not doing anything you know where we're moving, but. You know, it is neat to watch, especially a band like Dream Theater, really get into what they're doing. Um, and like the first like eight minutes are just watching the guy on keyboards. You know, it's just too, too cool of an experience. You know, for me, what's interesting is when I think about Dream Theater, it kind of reminds me of like those ads that's like, Sunday, 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 <laughs> in the octagon, blah, blah, blah. It's, but it, it kind of reminds me of that, but it's like, it, it's exciting. I mean, like, yes, Hunter's totally right. This is out of our wheelhouse. But something that I think I said to Nick, something that we need to talk more about. Um, because, yes, I mean, we, we, did, we, we talked about this a little in the podcast about how classical can be rock. But what is the, it's the superficial glue that can really push them together? And we really talked about that on the show, so you're going to have to go back and listen to that again. Um, my name is Sean on Kunis. I'm Mary Haddix Hermans. I'm Nick Ario. And I'm Hunter Sagona. And we will see you next time. And remember to keep listening to what you love. Mm-hmm.